Hello and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, bringing you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. In the spirit of non-partisan academia, we are not going to talk about uh, the election result and what happened. I'm actually recording this on the third, so I don't even know yet. Have you know I'm British and I have all this election anxiety, so I can only imagine what our American brothers and sisters and colleagues and friends are going through right now. But never mind, you come to Polar Times, hopefully because you want a bit of lighthearted relief, because you want maybe to escape from the real world. And I'm happy to say that today we can give that to you. So why not join me and my guest? Today we are taking you to the Western Antarctic Ice Sheet. We're taking you to a little place called Sherman Island. And what we're doing there is we are collecting ice cores. Yay, it's our first Ice Core episode, of course, on a polar podcast that was bound to happen. It's also our first episode with a paleoclimatologist. So we talk about all kinds of things. We talk about how, you know, polar field work can't happen without the support of logistics and the people in the background. We talk about what goes wrong when you're out in the field and how you deal with that. We talk about the past climate in the power you can tell from an ice core what the climate was like thousands of years ago. Most importantly, we talk about how that informs our future and what might be happening to our climate in the future. You know, regardless of what we little humans do scurrying around on the surface of the earth in the next hundred years or so. So welcome to Polar Time. Sit back, relax, come and escape with us. Let go of your woes, your worries, and just for an hour, enjoy these Polar Times. Okay, everybody, people of all genders, please welcome to the stage, Isabel Rao. Hi, Isabel. How's it going? Hi, very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you so much for joining us on Polar Times. We're excited to have you, our first kind of physical atmospheric climate scientist. So uh, it's very exciting. So this is the first part of the podcast, so this is what we like to call the icebreaker, where we get to know you, and it's a little bit cheesy, a little bit corny, but we roll with it. Uh, so who are you, and how did you come to polar life? Right, so I am a third-year PhD student now at the University of Cambridge. I kind of got to where I am now through a little bit of a roundabout route. I started my uh, academic career, I guess you can call it, um, in Manchester for my undergraduate degree. Uh, but I actually studied biomedical science. So kind of worlds away from what I'm doing now for my PhD. But I guess around that time, so I graduated originally in 2016. And around that time, I guess climate science and climate change particularly was starting to get a lot more attention, particularly in the press and online. And I certainly noticed that and I kind of became a lot more interested in in that sort of area of science rather than what I was studying then at the time. And I kind of decided instead of pursuing research area that I was currently in, that I'd like to kind of use the skills I had and the scientific knowledge I had, but in a different way. So that's the point at which I decided to move more towards climate science very broadly, but I didn't have <laughs> much of an idea about where, where that would get me just then. So uh, I kind of decided on, yeah, this huge career switch. And that took me to uh, the University of Birmingham in the UK, where I did a master's degree in meteorology and climatology. I didn't actually, so although I'm studying paleoclimate now, there wasn't really a huge amount of paleoclimate material 
during in that master's course that I took. But I learned um, a lot about sort of the climate system in general, climate models, that kind of thing. And yeah, in passing um, during a lecture about CO2 and sort of current CO2 levels, the lecturer mentioned ice cores. And I had never really heard of this before. I didn't really know what it was. But it was just to kind of, I guess, give an impression of the context of, of current CO2 levels that we see and how, you know, the context for that and the history of of the Earth's climate. And I just thought that was so um, so interesting and so exciting, the fact that you could kind of go back and measure what happened in the past just from, from ice that, that, that set the poles. I just thought that was so cool. And yeah, and around that time I was considering a PhD. I saw the one that I, that I managed to get here uh, advertised, went for it. And yeah, that kind of led me to where I am now. So that's, that's how I got here. Definitely not the most direct route and certainly not what I would have pictured myself doing when I was 18 and choosing what I wanted to do at university. But here we are. <laughs> sure. So was there any specific reason why it, there was like climate and weather and stuff like that? Was it just because it was, you know, so in the news and relevant and kind of yeah, up and coming at the so. time? I think it really is as simple as that, is that it just seemed like this huge problem. I think I was also maybe becoming a little bit disillusioned with the work I was doing for my undergraduate degree. It wasn't quite as exciting as I envisioned it might be when I was sort of 18. And and that kind of came along at a similar time. So felt like a a sort of new path. Yeah, but there there really is um, no one thing that I can kind of pinpoint it to. But it just, yeah, this kind of the drawer of this huge global problem that's going to affect you know, everybody, that seemed kind of a, a useful way, I guess, to spend my the sort of knowledge, I guess, all the skills that I'd picked up during my degree. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, I see, I remember being in high school and watching things like, you know, The Inconvenient Truth. And mm-hmm. I feel like maybe, not, I don't want to say for sure, but I feel like maybe we were like the first generation that did global warming and climate change, maybe as young as primary school and high school. And it's like, yeah, this is this big problem which we've inherited, I suppose. So. yeah. Yeah, 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 it's super, super interesting. You are interested in the paleoclimate. What is the paleoclimate? What does that mean? So paleoclimate is literally past climate. So you can investigate paleoclimate of, of the Earth in a number of uh, different ways. Uh, really what we do is we look to places where something accumulates, a physical something accumulates over time, and then you can measure that something and it will tell us something about the past. So you can look at geological records, so sediment that builds up over time, lake sediments. You can even look at tree rings um, are a good example. So if you can imagine that each ring on the tree is is a sort of a, a passage of time, if you can measure something in that tree which responds to climate in a kind of quantifiable way then you can investigate past climate indirectly and so I do this but I do this with ice cores so if you imagine that over time as snow falls at the poles or or even on high mountains that snow which is building up year on year deeper down is 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 further back in time and so we can measure the ice that builds up um, as it gets compacted down into ice and we can measure things that, that get trapped in the air as well in the snow so as that snow falls the air inside gets compacted down as well and then that can give us a past indication of atmospheric content. And so that's where we have these incredible records going back thousands or hundreds of thousands of years of, of CO2 concentrations. And we can use that to show that what we're experiencing today is, is unprecedented in at least the last sort of million or but even up to several million years. Okay, so there you go, ice cores. So that brings us, of course, yeah. to 
Antarctica. Does a nice core from Antarctica only tell you about Antarctic climate, or does it tell you about kind of global climate? I mean, what was Antarctica like in the past? <laughs> that's a really good question. So that's kind of what I'm hoping, one of the questions I'm hoping to kind of understand in a little more detail. Um, so generally speaking, we would just consider it to give us a record of what happened in Antarctica in the past. But of course, um, uh, large-scale changes that happen in Antarctica probably also reflect large-scale changes elsewhere. And we also get ice cores from Greenland as well, so we can look at sort of ways in which those changes happen in time at both poles, or at least going back as far as the records allow us to. So they can, these ice cores, they can tell us the past weather or the past climate? What's the difference? Oh. How fine scale can it tell you? Can it tell you it was a sunny Tuesday 11,000 years ago? If only, if only. That would be, that would be fantastic. No, broadly speaking, we're looking at, uh, and, and it really does vary from site to site. So we can look at quite high resolution records from areas where snow builds up very quickly. So where there's a lot of snowfall, you'll tend to get shorter records, but that are in much more detail. And you can particularly higher up in the core see uh, seasonal cycles in certain sites, but then in the sort of really inland parts of Antarctica. So if you think about the East Antarctic Plateau, it's actually classed as a desert because there's so little precipitation. There's such low, a low rate of snowfall that the records that we get, although they're not very high resolution, they actually extend really, really far back in time. So the longest record that currently exists goes back 800,000 years. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you wouldn't really, really be looking at on even an annual scale, particularly deeper down. It's really most reliably is sort of uh, hundred, hundreds of years timescales is the kind of thing that we've been thinking about in those long cores. But it really does vary from, from place to place. Sure. But that's enough to tell us, I suppose, the important question, which is relevant today, you know, was it getting warmer? Was it getting colder? You drill a big core of ice and it's not just the same kind of ice all the way down, is it? can see the difference between interglacial ice and other yeah, <laughs> kinds of ice. Exactly, yeah, very is, good, yeah. yeah so. I did my homework, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what is, that? what is interglacial ice? Mm. Why is so, that especially interesting? Well, so interglacials are the warm periods, the relatively brief warm periods that we get between ice ages. So um, in terms of what the ice core record tells us, the continuous record that we have that goes back 800,000 years shows us eight cycles of um, an ice age and then an intervening warm period. We're currently in a warm period, so we're currently in a warm period called the Holocene, which uh, began around 12,000 years ago, 11,700 years ago. And yeah, so these warm periods are natural cycles, so you get these natural cycles of ice ages and warm periods. But what's really exciting is that the previous interglacial that happened, so the one before the Holocene, so before the most recent ice age, was actually, we think that temperatures, particularly at the poles, peaked a couple of degrees warmer than today. Um, And so that's kind of a really interesting analogue for what might happen in the future. For different reasons, the the temperature was warmer, not necessarily because of a higher spike in CO2, but it's the sort of most recent example we have of a a warmer climate than ours. Um, And therefore, yeah, represents a really interesting target to investigate for what what could happen as a result of anthropogenic climate change. Okay, so it's like 
telling the future from uh, ice in the past so what could what does what kind of things does it tell you like just literally the temperature or the kind of atmosphere breakdown of gas i suppose we can get sort of a what's called a paleo thermometer in um, ice cores or in paleoclimate, which is using water isotope ratios. So these respond to temperature, so they can give us an indirect measure of temperature in the past. Also using chemical records in the ice, that can tell us a lot about what was going on in that area. So as well as the ice that gets deposited um, at the poles through snowfall, that snowfall will also pick up certain things from the atmosphere in it as it falls. So uh, one interesting example of this is um, dust, or another example is sea salt. So during this last interglacial period, so when we think it was a little bit warmer than today, there is a suspicion that parts of the West Antarctic ice sheet actually collapsed and retreated compared to what it's, what it's like today. And this would have added several meters to global sea level rise. That's obviously an incredibly important thing to try and pin down for future scenarios as to what extent might this happen. And we're talking on a long time scale, we're talking hundreds of years, but still it's a very important but Still, that's the, people want to know that, don't they? Yeah, right. Like how much and how fast are their sea levels going to rise? I exactly, it's huge. So we look at sites, because ice cores can help us answer this question. So based on the chemical records of what's in the ice, can tell us a little bit about what was happening nearby that site at certain points in time. So um, one way to think about this is if you were um, in Antarctica, you would have had some indication through that ice of whether there was open ocean nearby. And that will show up in the chemical records of that we can measure in the ice. So for example, sea salt makes its way to um, ice, can make its way to ice core drilling sites and the concentration of sea salt that we can measure in the ice will give us an indication of how close open ocean or sea ice was to that site. So the general principle is if there's a higher concentration of sea salt, so something like sodium that we can measure pretty easily, um, that's going to show up. And if there's a, yeah, if there's a higher concentration, that's going to indicate that open ocean or sea ice was nearby that implies that the ice sheet therefore was not, and therefore that there was possibly collapse close to that area. Yeah, of course. You kind of forget, don't you, that, that Antarctica obviously is land covered by fresh water. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. So, you, so, so if you're finding yeah. salt in the middle, somewhere in the middle, you're like, okay, this must have been collapsed in the sea at some point. Yeah, it had to come from somewhere. Yeah, of it's, course. And you see things in the ice cores, you know, I suppose sea salt is is that quite easy to pick out in the cores? And then sometimes I saw on Twitter that it's saw a big core with like volcanic dust in it. And I was like, oh, well, that's pretty clear there was a volcano that year. <laughs> but then there's also the chemical breakdowns like you're talking about. So you used the word uh, water isotope ratios. So what is an isotope? So an isotope is a slightly heavier or lighter version of an element. Um, so if you imagine... Um, something like oxygen. Oxygen is typically given um, a molecular weight of 16, but um, some of those molecules have, uh, sorry, some of those atoms, I should say, I guess, have a molecular weight of 17 or even 18, but they are much, much less common than the, than the normal weight, which is the 16. But they exist in nature and they exist in a steady amount. Um, so if you imagine um, an air mass, say, over the equator, which is going to evaporate Um, and form a cloud. And then if you imagine that same air mass containing um, that amount of water moving towards the poles, whether that's the north or the south, uh, it's going to get colder. And when it gets colder, precipitation happens. 
And during both of these stages, so during the evaporation of the water and then the condensation and the precipitation, um, you get this process called fractionation. So during this process, um, so during evaporation, the lighter isotope evaporates preferentially to the heavier isotope. And then during condensation, the heavier isotope rains out preferentially. So as the air mass moves towards the pole, each time um, a condensation event happens, so each time that cloud rains, <laughs> the cloud is becoming more and more depleted in the heavy isotope. So it's got more and more of the light isotope relative to what is a normal standard amount um, in the ocean. Okay, so you can see the movement of air masses like across Antarctica based on well, it's isotopes more and ice cores. Yeah, so there's different components of the um, what we then measure in the ice that falls as a result of snowfall over Antarctica. The, the sort of relative makeup of that um, of the isotope uh, mixture in the ice will depend on both the site temperature and also the source temperature. So there's a kind of relationship there that you need to unpick. Um, and that's what we can, we can do in the ice core records and that's what can give us an indication of temperature going back in time. Okay, fascinating. There you go. So there's really, there's so much that, you know, just a tube of ice <laughs> can tell you. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm going to follow up uh, my relatively clever questions with some really stupid questions because that's why I'm here to ask the silly questions that <laughs> scientists don't want to. So when, how deep can you drill an ice core? Literally, like how, how what's the longest ice core that you can get yeah, well, it's really a question of how deep is the ice sheet. I mean, we can drill to pretty amazing depths. So we'll use different drilling techniques for different depths. So um, you can drill just 20 meters, say, from the top, wherever you are, um, and that will be drilled um, with, a pretty, with a pretty rudimentary drill and a drill barrel that sort of bores down. Yeah. yeah by <laughs> two, hand, but... Two guys <laughs> and a... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, handle. <laughs> right, pretty much. And you just kind of stick these poles on so that you can go deeper and deeper and pull it back up by hand. So that's sort of, yeah, maybe up to 30 or so meters. Then there are different sort of levels of mechanical drills that go to slightly deeper than that, um, sort of maybe in the range, region of tens to hundreds of uh, a few couple of hundred meters. And then there's deep ice core drills. So the long ice core record that I talked about before, the one that goes back 800,000 years, that ice core in length was actually over three kilometers. Oh my God, how, <laughs> so, how did they remove that? I suppose you chop it as you come out. Yeah, of course, so you drill, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I can't remember exactly how far they drilled at once, but it's in the region of maybe two to four meters or something like that at a time. And then every time oh, it comes cool. up, it gets cut down into maybe meter or so sections. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, there you go. That's so cool. <laughs> so cool. Right. And then, uh, okay, all right, my, my second stupid question is, uh, when, you, when you're looking at your ice core in this, this tube that you have in front of you, can you see with your naked eye, like from how cloudy or something it is, though that was a, that's interglacial or that's not, or that was summer, that's winter, or do you need to like really? Um, get down to it with a microscope i mean i i've never actually personally looked at the ice under the microscope although there are that you know, people that do look at the sort of the fabric the structure of the ice but you can kind of see 
It's a good question, actually. It's not an easy one to answer. So like you said before, you can see, um, sometimes you can see volcanic events and that's literally just looks like a, a layer of sort of thick dust. It's, it's really gray, almost black. And you can see them quite vividly and they're these really kind of lovely black lines in this kind of otherwise white ice core. But yeah, generally during ice ages, there's a lot less snowfall. So the dust that, it, that accumulates at the poles tends to is therefore more concentrated and that can sort of result in a slightly cloudy appearance i guess but generally you don't you wouldn't notice that by eye but you do notice these big volcanic events yeah do you ever get other weird things in your ice cores like living things or pollen or plastic i suppose you'd only get plastic mm. right at the top <laughs> yeah i'm imagining that yeah um that sort of shallow cores from coastal areas particularly will probably start to have plastics appear in them. I would, that's, definitely, that's definitely a possibility. Um, well, considering we can get um, ice cores from really anywhere where snow accumulates over time, where ice forms, um, yeah, there have been occurrences of strange and wonderful things appearing, generally not in the sort of deep um, inland regions of, say, Greenland, Antarctica. Um, but um, there was a really uh, lovely example of, I think it was a core from somewhere in the States um, that was drilled, uh, so sort of like a mountain glacier where they drilled, and they actually brought up a grasshopper leg. Into oh. <laughs> and I think they were actually able to use that for carbon dating, so they were able to carbon date the organic like matter in the, in the grasshopper ah, leg to help them date the ice core, which is pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. It's like fossils in the ice or something. Yeah. They weren't like, oh, damn it, there's insects in this one. You have to, you could actually use it. Great. We like to call this section uh, Fieldwork Fun Times because I know you've just got back, well, just got back this year from quite an exciting fieldwork trip. And it all kind of stems, I suppose, from my the main question of how do you drill an ice core from start to finish, I suppose. So you, yeah, take it away, I suppose. Like, how, okay. what was your fieldwork like? Where did you go? What? Why did you go there? Yeah, and so... I went to a place out in the West Antarctic called Sherman Island. So if you think of a sort of typical map of Antarctica where the Antarctic Peninsula is at sort of maybe 10 or 11 tail. on the clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pointing yeah. <laughs> up. Um, and I'm at kind of nine o'clock on, on that map, if you like. So out, um, at a place called Sherman Island, which is located in the middle of the Abbott Ice Shelf between sort of mainland Antarctica and a larger island called Thurston Island. Um, and I was really there as a part of the sort of larger umbrella project that my PhD is a part of, which is called Waxwain. So this is a project that aims to try and pick apart, pick apart excuse me, what happened to the West Antarctic during that last interglacial period when it was a little warmer than today. Um, yes, and if the listeners are wondering around the word waxwain, I think it's an acronym, <laughs> and correct me if I get this wrong, is it yes. Warm Climate Stability of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet and the Last Interglacial? 
Exactly. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Waxwain, for sure. <laughs> Waxwain is a little more catchy, yeah. <laughs> there you go. They have their own Twitter. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, um, so this was the second of two field seasons of this project. The first was at a different place called Skytrain Ice Rise, which is just next to the Ronnie Ice Shelf. Um, so the main goal of this was to kind of hopefully supplement the results that we get from that um, project. Uh, so with, this was actually a little bit of a high-risk site going in. We always knew that um, there, were, there was a risk about this site and that we didn't know um, or we had a less accurate estimate of how old the ice would be at the bottom of the ice sheet, so at the bedrock. Whereas there'd been quite a lot of sort of pre-site pre-drilling surveys and things sort of done with the other site beforehand, they were pretty confident that they would get ice that was the right age um, at that other site. Um, but we were less certain with the, other, with the site at Sherman Island. So for that reason, we decided to drill with a different drill, which is called the Rapid Access Isotope Drill. And this is actually a pretty new piece of technology and really cool because it allows us to drill hundreds of meters in just a few days. So whereas with traditional drilling techniques that would take weeks or months, we were able to be to get to the site, set up the drilling, do the drilling and leave all within two weeks, which is pretty bad wow. off in okay. the world. Yeah, that's why we were there. That's how we were drilling. But that does mean that the experience I had there is not really typical of a typical ice core project. But that was kind of the whole point. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And we have to remember, so these sites that you're going to on Sherman Island and the Skytrain, these are, there's no bases there. This is not like where there's buildings and there's people with, you know, cooks and saunas and, yeah. <laughs> and ships coming all the time. These are like the middle of nowhere. So yeah. why did you pick Sherman Cause it Because you think there's ice there that you want for your project or for Waxwain's pretty project? Much. Yeah, pretty much. So the Waxwain, so the, yeah, the ice there was predicted that it would be able to fulfill the aims of the Waxwain project. It's a site that's reasonably close to the coast. It's a little further north than um, a lot of other sites from Western Antarctic have been drilled before. Based on estimates of the accumulation rate there, we suspected that, and um, an estimate of the depth of the ice sheet. So using those two kind of factors, we were able to estimate that the ice at the bottom may be old, uh, old enough for the project, <laughs> I should say. That was the main reason behind being there specifically. But you're right, it's completely remote. To get there takes a couple of days, even once you've got to Rothera Research Station, which is the UK's main research station. Okay, so, and then um, did you get to Sherman Island from Rothera via ship? Just like, I can't try to picture where they both are, but <laughs> I need a big map of Antarctica in front of me. No, uh, so it was um, because it is inland and it is inside the ice sheet, you wouldn't be able to get there by ship, so we were actually flown out there um, on Bass's little aircraft, oh. these twin otters. Wow, fantastic. So you had a nice little personal flight over Antarctica. That's incredible. How was that? Was it good it weather? Was. It must have been, I suppose, to fly. Exactly, yeah. That's actually one of the nicest things, um, I guess, about the flights and stuff within Antarctica is they only happen in good weather. So, yeah, so they were really beautiful. Incredible views, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow, I can't even barely imagine that's incredible and then so how long does it take you to fly from Rothera to where you're going mm, so we it took a few sort of hops really so you take one flight to um this place called Fossil Bluff which is a manned it's manned during the summer 
uh, at the Antarctic summer and is just basically a little fuel depot for all the flights that, that sort of happen from Rothera. We then flew on to another place called Sky Blue, which is a slightly bigger kind of logistical hub, um, which Bass uses, um, which is still up on sort of just on towards the peninsula but getting further inland to Antarctica getting further south from there it was then two more little hops to get out to Sherman Island so via another fuel depot and then out to the island itself where we met our field guides uh, Tom and Sarah I need to thank them in person because they were wonderful from there it was we were left for two weeks and then oh my god same trip back Wow, the yeah. logistics just kind of blow your mind, don't they? Right. <laughs> it's yeah, really, it's really wild. And then, so what's it like at Sherman Island, this place where you touch down, where you've been dropped for two weeks, like paint a picture, what does it, yeah. what, what can you see? What does it look like? So mostly pretty flat and pretty white. I mean, <laughs> right, like, like you'd imagine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. You sort of look around in this uh, panorama and it really, on a clear day, it really is just kind of white for the first half, bottom half of your vision, and then blue above if it's a nice clear day. Um, we were actually near the sort of ridge of the island, um, so the deepest point, which obviously makes sense for drilling as deep as we could go. Um, and when you walk just a over the ridge, you could kind of see Thurston Island, which has some sort of mountains and like nunataks poking up out of the ice. And so that was really, really beautiful. You could also just see the edge of the ice shelf on a really clear day. So you could kind of see that point where the ice shelf appears to sort of drop off and you can maybe imagine that the ocean was over there somewhere. So yeah, wow. that's really impressive too. But it feels, I mean, it's, easily the most remote place I've ever been in my entire life and it definitely definitely feels like it yeah and how many of you were there were there were dropped oh, off five. there left there just five yeah of you. Okay. five wow. of us so me myself one of my supervisors another PhD student and two field guides so it was just just the five of us for two weeks mm-hmm. and you wrote in your blog which was fantastic by the way everyone I might direct people to there when we promote this episode uh if the planes that come back we die here <laughs> yeah <laughs> So that was actually what my supervisor told me. I was feeling kind of nervous at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and that was his comforting words. <laughs> oh, there you go. Supervisors are like that, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> no, I should say he's lovely and he was wonderful. Yeah. 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 There you go. Um, and then, so you got there and you have to set up all your equipment yourself and just kind of, you're living in tents on a nice sheet. So, you know, um, kind of praying for good weather <laughs> for two weeks but yeah. Antarctica's not really like that is that is, did you have any bad storms or anything or yeah so we were there it was <laughs> certainly not plain sailing <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> we got some great weather for the sort of first half I guess of the time we were there um which gave us loads of time to get all the equipment set up get started with the project um And so everything appeared to be going very well. We had a couple of windy days once we got going, and that was kind of rough. Weirdly, the strangest thing about it was that what was hardest is actually the warmer days. So we had a day where it was very, very windy, but also quite warm. So, and because we had sort of set up this little shelter, wind shelter to drill inside of, it meant that um, we kind of were in this little warm, (laughs) little warm patch really, I guess, among this kind of windstorm. So the uh, snow that was getting sort of picked up by the wind um, and blown around at us was then sort of settling on surfaces and actually starting to melt, which then meant that everything got wet and we got wet, uh, which oh, no. so much colder. 
Yeah, um, so much cotton, yeah. And then, can you, how can you dry out quite easily when you've just got little tents? I, suppose I you mean, some kind of... I will say they're pretty, they're pretty good at, at sort of being quite cosy. So when you go into the... You kind of hope so, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You kind of set this little tilly lamp up, which packs out a ton of heat and light as well. Um, and then you sort of hang that in the tent and these sort of pyramid tents. So um, what we would do is sort of hang all of our like wet clothes up at the top of the pyramid. And then obviously as the heat rises, it, it warms everything off and dries it off. So you can put nice warm socks on in the morning. But um, yeah. You need, yeah. It makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then so you're collecting, are you collecting big ice cores from your rapid access yeah the, the the cool thing... raid <laughs> yeah raid yeah the raid, <laughs> the raid. was yeah, it fairly so easy the... to set up and like the setup was actually pretty good yeah um in, again so this is the one of the benefits of this type of drilling is that in comparison to a traditional drilling setup um it's much more sort of temporary i guess really so you're not spending as much time building a huge tent for drilling inside you just um use a sort of little uh, wheel and connect sort of a cable around a couple of wheels and then it uh, use this winch to draw the drill up into position. Yeah, so, but the, there is obviously a downside to this drilling. Um, otherwise, everybody would be doing it for every project. So the main thing is that we're not actually taking a true, I guess, ice core with the raid. So um, the, way, the reason that it's so quick is that instead of drilling, um, a, a solid core it um, is a single barrel which means that it just drills down in sort of a spiral and um, destroys the ice as it's drilling so it just brings up these ice chippings rather than a solid core okay interesting but I guess that's yeah. all you need for doing your chemical kind of so yeah stuff so we yeah. can measure it for the water isotopes which I was talking about before so this kind of um, temperature record that we can get um, and we can get some chemistry from it. The only downside there is that because it's chippings, they're a little bit more prone to contamination from the environment. So the mm -hmm. chemical records that we get there are not going to be as pure, as pristine as you would from the inside of a core that's never seen, you know, or since the snow fell has not seen sort of the outside world, if you like. And then, so it's all going kind of swimmingly and you're collecting lots of bags of ice chippings. Mm. And then then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was too leading. I don't, I'm no, no, no. Overly dramatic. Because <laughs> uh, Antarctic science is not always plain sailing, is it? No. I'm, no, we're bound by things beyond our control. And in this case, we don't really know what happened. But sadly, uh, as Rob, my supervisor, was doing the drilling one day, um, we were at about 323 meters depth. The ice drill had just gone down and reached the bottom of the borehole and was getting ready to drill the next meter of, or meter and a half of ice. Um, and it didn't come back up. Um, right. And we <laughs> looked over at the sound of uh, swearing, frankly, coming, yeah. from, <laughs> coming from the uh, drilling drill controller. And it, we don't know. We don't know what happened, but it was stuck and we could not get it out. So, so the drill was stuck in the borehole. Like how? Was, could that, how? Yeah. <laughs> I guess you still don't know. <laughs> we still don't know for sure. Um, one theory is that um, because 
the raid drill doesn't replace the borehole, the empty borehole with a drilling fluid, which would stop borehole closure from happening. Um, it is possible that the borehole essentially started to close over from ice, um, just ice moving, um, and therefore trapped the drill. That is a possibility. We we suspect that's that must be what what has done it. We can't. We'll never know for sure. Never for sure. Still left behind in the ice sheet now. To this oh, day. you had to leave it there. You have to leave the it there. Sheet. I guess. Yeah, so what we else can you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we actually actually cut the cable that takes the drill down and and leave it there. There was not. There was nothing else to do. So that was a very very sad day. A sad day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry to yeah, <laughs> pull no. it out for the general public, <laughs> but I, I think know. it's a you know it's important for people to know and talk to times like it? anything. I mean, exactly. these logistics we have are fabulous. And obviously when it works, it's great. But then yeah. it's kind of a nine times out of 10, I imagine. Maybe even 10 times out of 10. You know, it's just a matter of the stars misaligning to, <laughs> to you know, lead to these unfortunate events. Yeah. I don't think anyone in polar science would be like, you know, oh, that's so shocking. How did that happen? You know, mm, <laughs> any kind exactly. of judgment at all. <laughs> We've, actually, everyone who's been in the field has been there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And actually, um, you know, like you say, I've blogged and things about this before and, and, the response is nothing but support and nothing but, oh, you'll be able to get something. You know, there's still some really great information there to be had. Um, oh, absolutely. Which is absolutely yeah. true. So, because, yeah, we still have, and I should make it clear, really, we, we took samples from all the way down to that depth at which we got, at which the drill got stuck. So I've still got actually 1,700 or something samples <laughs> yeah. there to analyze. So there's still a huge amount of information there. Um, yeah. And so you just have to kind of, roll with the punches and try and think of something positive to get out of it. Sure, sure. And it's kind of <laughs> tricky, isn't it? I suppose leaving yes, the Antarctic, it's obviously the countryside code to the nth degree. The Antarctic mm. Treaty is like, leave no traces, etc. Mm -hmm. But then it's obviously this toss up with being safe. I assume you could, only, you could only stay there for two weeks and it's not like you can just be like, oh, we'll give it three weeks instead and try and figure out a solution. It just doesn't. Right. We did our best to attempt to free it at the time, to attempt yeah. to drill yeah. and pull it back out. We tried what, you know, with the limited resources that we obviously have out there, we did what we could. Leaving it behind was absolutely the last thing we wanted to do. So we, we all, as, as scientists and just as people who sort of care about the environment, of course, would never have wished to have left that behind. But, you know, it was just the way, it is the way that project ended very sadly. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. And is there, but the Waxwing project, is that still ongoing? Are they going to do another trip to Sherman Island or to anywhere else? There are no plans for any more trips. So these are the two project field projects that were planned. I think logistically and in terms of the time, both of my PhD and of the you know massive amount of planning that it goes into taking a, a making a field project happen, there is no plan to go back to Sherman Island. Now the focus really is on the lab analysis of the ice that we have. So of the original core from Skytrain Ice Rise and eventually of the samples from Sherman Island. And we'll start to then analyze that data and start to pick apart what might have happened during the past. And so a nice sort of new update from that is that last week, actually, analysis on the Skytrain Ice Rise core was complete, or at least the sort of one side of the analysis was complete, which is called this continuous flow analysis. Mm -hmm. so this is a cool process by which we cut out the long strips of ice from the very middle of the ice core 
and melt it continuously. And the meltwater from the middle of that gets fed into lots of different instruments simultaneously and measured all at the same time. And so we can measure lots of different components all, all at once. Um, and that's, so that's taken actually a few months to complete, especially with the interruption of the last few months. But yeah, so there's a, a huge celebration now going on and that that is now complete. And we have some preliminary data from the SkyTrain Ice Rise core. So that's been really exciting. Fabulous. Congratulations. So we're going to be my next question. It's like, how do you go about analysing this? So you take a core from within the core. That's quite yeah. interesting. Just so using like a smaller a... drill. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we spent last summer, the team spent last summer cutting the ice on a bandsaw <laughs> into strips of different sizes and different measurements. But what's really important about this measurement is that you take a square sort of column this time of ice from the very middle. So by making different cuts along the length of the ice core, and then that square gets fed onto a melt head. Then what's happened, what happens is really interesting in that the sample that gets measured is automatically decontaminated by any ice that has been exposed to the air. So if you imagine the sort of 3.2, I think, centimeter square of ice that we plunk onto this melt head, and the very internal part of that, so maybe the sort of two centimetres of the middle of that gets fed into the instruments and all of the outside of that square gets flows out to waste. So you're only taking ice from the very centre that's had no exposure to, to modern air or modern contaminants. Wow, that's so interesting. And is it kind of a nervous moment when you're like melting your, <laughs> your ice that's never before seen? Yeah, since 8,000 years ago. Or how yeah, you could <laughs> say that. that you could say yeah. that. <laughs> it's, um, we have sort of, if we want, then we have two attempts. So when we make the cuts, so when we made the cuts last summer, we made two of these square strips. Um, one of them is kind of held in reserve for if we need to go back and look at something in a bit more detail or if we need to have another go at it. But um, it actually all went extremely well. So we've managed to get through the whole core without any major hiccups so it's been really cool fabulous there you go okay <laughs> awesome so this is the part of the podcast that we like to call the polar plug uh, this is where i just give our guest as well two minutes to talk about a topic that you want to talk about and uninterrupted just uh go out so yeah take it away whatever you'd like to promote to or talk about to people how about yeah. it Great. So I did spend a little time today trying to decide what I wanted to talk about. Um, there's lots of things that I think I could fill two minutes with or however long you're going to give me today. <laughs> but I thought the thing, and we've kind of touched on it already a little bit, that I feel really strongly about is how many people there are and how many people are unseen that make polar research possible, particularly in the field. Um, particularly in these extreme environments, so like Antarctica, like Greenland or the Himalayas or these extreme mountain environments. So there are just so many people who are working behind the scenes and that, in my opinion at least, rarely get the kind of acknowledgement that they truly deserve, particularly in sort of scientific papers and scientific literature that we're producing as, as scientists. So I really want to celebrate those people and, and all the incredible work they do. So, I mean, there are those sort of back home, if you like, who keep our academic institutions running on a day-to-day -day basis. But the people I really want to kind of big up are those who are carrying out 
tasks every single day which keep remote research st stations running, who make up the staff of ships and research vessels, or those that even take part actively in some of the field work that we do, maybe just in a non-scientific capacity. So for example, there are pilots, meteorologists, uh, field guides, chefs, there are mechanics, IT engineers, plumbers, electricians, uh, medics, you know, keeping us safe, keeping us healthy. And this is likely to be biased towards my experience of Antarctic fieldwork, particularly through uh, Rotherwell Research Station. There are those who carry out science on base, so sort of scientific assistants and people who work in the labs on base, divers, all of these people, and undoubtedly I've missed probably quite a few, but they're utterly essential in making our science happen. Yet sadly, when we come to write our research papers, sometimes their names just don't quite make the cut. We write our theses and they're really well cited and often we'll even dedicate a whole page of acknowledgements to our families, our partners and friends for supporting us through the tough times of our PhD projects. And rightly so, these people are all vital and all a huge part of making science happen too. But I can't help feeling that the contribution of those in the background is lacking. So although this doesn't even feel like enough, I really want to celebrate those people and thank them for choosing to work in such an extreme environment often in really tough conditions. But they're supporting science all the time. Without those people, polar science just could not happen. So to sum up, my message to them is thank you. Yes, excellent. There you go. And I'm sure that's a message that will be echoed by all uh, polar academics everywhere, including definitely myself. So yeah, thank you to all those people. And hopefully that's something uh, that we'd really like to take um, into polar times in the future. That's why we say, how did you get into polar life instead of polar science or academia? We're hopefully, yeah, hopefully going to feature all these people in the in the future. So stay tuned on Polar Times. Uh, thank you once again for listening to another episode. Uh, don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe on all your little podcast apps. Uh, you can contact us if you have a question for a polar scientist or if there's a particular guest who you'd like to hear from. Uh, we have an email account. It is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. Once again, that's thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. You can also tweet Apex, which is at polar underscore research. So there you go. Do please get in contact. All that's left is for me to thank our guest for the day, everyone. This was Isabel Rao. Thanks, Isabel, so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Jack, for having me. Yeah, it's been excellent. So, uh, yes, please tune in again next week or the week after to Polar Times. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.